Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. Have you ever dreamed of doing the impossible? When you always feel motivated to grow, push your boundaries, and step outside your comfort zone? My guest, Stephen Kotler, says that doing the impossible is possible. After studying elite athletes, artists, CEOs, scientists, and more, Stephen found that we can be consistently unstoppable, even in the face of adversity and setbacks. Stephen will tell us what it really takes to maximize our potential and achieve peak performance. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He is the author of 10 bestsellers out of 14 books, including The Art of Impossible. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes translated into over 50 languages, and has appeared in over 100 publications, including the New York Times Magazine, Wall Street Journal, Time, and the Harvard Business Review. In this interview, Stephen will share his expertise on flow state and how to enter and sustain it so that we can stretch ourselves and achieve impossible feats. He'll also talk about his new sci-fi thriller, The Devil's Dictionary, and the inspiration behind its message about animal rights. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hello, Stephen. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It is lovely to have you on the show. Um, I'm a big fan of your work. I've read The, the Art of Impossible. Um, so I'm excited to talk about some of the concepts that you, you cover in the book and also talk a little bit about your new book, The Devil's Dictionary, which I found to be quite different from what you usually write about. Do you agree? It uh, depends which of my books you've read. I started out as a novelist. So if you've read my first novel or you've read uh, my other sci-fi novels, it's not as bizarre as you might expect, or if you've read Small Furry Prayer, which is a book I wrote about the relationship between humans and animals, because the themes are really the same. Um, but yeah, if you've been reading my books over the past 10 years, you're probably wondering, what the hell is this? Yeah, uh, but I, I mean, I read the reviews and it, it seemed like it was a continuation of a, of a series that, you, that you've been working on. I've been working on a series of, of near-term future sci-fi books. Um, right. We, the, the term they use to describe it is cyberpunk, which is a fancy term that comes actually from like back in the early 1990s, movies like Blade Runner and uh, writers like William Gibson and Neil Stevenson 
uh, sort of pioneered this like near-term future sci-fi. Uh, so unlike most sci-fi, which is thousands of years in the future in other universes, on spaceships and whatnot, this is like our planet 10, 15 years hence. And it got this name cyberpunk because the genre is, it borrows a lot from like noir detective fiction. Mm -hmm, so sort of yeah. gritty detective fiction. And that got blended with near-term future sci-fi. And I think it's a really fun storytelling genre and it allows you because of the nature of how the genre sort of works the style itself it lends itself to like big discussions about complicated philosophical ideas but you can talk about them in like a fun exciting engaging the readers along for the ride adventure and if i would have tried to do that like trying to write about the devil's dictionary in a non-fiction book what i've been doing over the past 10 years first of all it would have been like 20,000 words long. It would have been 700 pages. Nobody would have wanted to read it. And it would have been so dense and fact-laden. But you can do the same thing in fiction and explore the same ideas um, in a much more fun way for the reader, is my thinking. Yeah, when I read it, I felt like I was in a, immersed in a world of that was a mix between um, James Bond, Dick Tracy, and The Matrix. Something like that, like as a hybrid of those worlds. Am I correct in my assessment? Yes. I mean, what's interesting is almost all the technology, both in the Devil's Dictionary and in uh, the, the the companion novel Last Tango, um, all of it's based on stuff that's real today, just rolled forward fifteen years into the future. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's all those things, and I think what it speaks to in a sense, is how much technological change we're going to experience over the next couple of decades. Because um, it really does, it's based, you know, in the in, in the research and disruptive technology that filled three or four of my books, it's that research just plotted, you know, 15 years out, 20 years out. But I'm glad it had that effect on you. Dick Tracy, huh? Dick Tracy, yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely good. got that feeling. <laughs> that's good. Um, I like that. I, yeah, and we'll get more into the book uh, later on. But for now, we want to know a little bit about your story. Um, so you've had a prolific career as a best-selling author, an award-winning journalist, and one of the leading experts on human performance. Um, and you talk a lot about the importance of human motivators when it comes to peak performance. So I'm curious to know, what have been your personal motivators that drove your efforts? I sort of, there are three things that sort of, and they merged, they don't merge together in obvious ways when you, like they show up, they merge together in books like the devil's dictionary, but I'm first and foremost, a writer, right? I'm an artist. I'm trained to like try to do beautiful, amazing things with language. And so like, I've always been deeply motivated just to, I love writing books. I, you know, I just can't stop writing. So I'm deeply motivated and I like writing books that, that really sort of make people laugh and sort of kick your head sideways and make you look at, at the world in a very different way. And if I've really done my job, make you look at what's possible for you in this world in a very different way. Um, and I like doing that. So there's a deep motivation to do that. There's a, I've got a puzzle solvers brain. So I've been working on flow science. Flow is the term for an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. It's those in the zone moments of rapt attention when you get so focused on what you're doing that everything else starts to disappear. And I've been obsessed almost my entire career with understanding the neurobiology. So what goes on in the brain and the body 
touring flow, when human beings are performing our best, how does this work? How can we get more of it? How can we use that science to train people? All these sort of questions. Um, and really, it's funny because people will point, they'll be like, okay, you're doing, your work is really good for the world, things along those lines. And I always point out that like, that's not my motivation here. It's not altruistic. Like flow is a puzzle for me. And I love the mystery of it. I love the puzzle of it. Um, if I do altruistic work, it's the third category, which I'm deeply, I've been deeply committed my whole life, making the world a better place for animals, plants and animals and ecosystems. But I focus predominantly on animals. And I apologize that obscene sound in the background is actually my big dog drinking water. <laughs> Just as we speak I about know, animals. It's always like somebody's filming a porn movie in the background. That's not uh, how many on. dogs do you have? I have uh, too many. Okay. Um, and, uh, too many is what we is what we say, and and that was Kiko, who's a who's a big sheepdog. Okay, yeah. So, like those motivations to make the world a better place for animals, to write really amazing books, and to decode flow science, those have been like my overarching motivations forever. Right, and you you started out as a journalist, right? I did. I did. And journalism was this crazy great career because you get paid to be curious, as you know, right? As a, running a podcast, it's the same, yeah. sort of the same yeah. job. And I do right? have a, I do have a master's in journalism. So yeah, I did. So I did. Know. Yeah, I did. So you know, yeah. right? It's mm-hmm. my, I had an old editor, Rob Hill used to say, being a journalist, you get to walk through the kingdom. And what he meant is like, you get to meet these giants in all these worlds um, and go, I mean, especially the way I did these long 10,000 word kind of, immersive stories so i'd go so you're a long form long form yeah, writer I was a long form journalist yeah. journalist so i would mm-hmm. go immerse myself in a world for three four five six months um and uh i always like to be come out the other side changed by what i wrote about however like whatever the story was i wanted to be a different person on the other end um and that sort of required that level of immersion um i don't know how we got here it's this crazy field where you just get to explore your curiosity. So anything yes. I was really interested in, um, I got to look into it and you know, it, it, it I, 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 I can relate. It's very gratifying. Totally gratifying. And I got stuck on a couple of like giant weird puzzles that have sort of defined my life and defined my career. And it's been fun because they've been at the intersection of all these weird interests. Wow. Wow. That's great. That's great. Um, and Stephen, let's talk about flow state. Um, you just defined it for us, but for people who aren't familiar with it, how do they know when they're experiencing flow? It's a good question. So uh, I gave you a shorthand definition of flow, right? When psychologists define flow, and, and this really is built on the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the godfather. Of Mihaly, yeah. Yeah, I can never say his um, name, so thank you for, for saying it for me. Yeah. Um, so uh, Mike figured out that flow has six core phenomenological characteristics, which is a big fancy word for saying this is how the state makes us feel. So how do you know if you're in flow? How do we define flow psychologically? We say you're in flow if there's complete concentration on the task at hand. Right. You're so focused on what you're doing. Right. That's all that's going on. There's a merger of action and awareness. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, maybe the voice in your head, your inner critic gets really quiet, self-diminishes. Time passes strangely. Occasionally it'll slow down. You get a freeze frame effect. My name is in a car crash. Much more frequently, you know, time speeds up. You get so sucked into what you're doing that five hours go by in like five seconds. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
we say that in flow, all of aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. That's true. That's not our internal experience. What we experience is this sense of control. Oh, wow, I can control things that I can't normally control. This could be, you know, me as a writer, six o'clock in the morning this morning, suddenly doing great things with my sentences that I don't normally do at six o'clock in the morning, right? Could be a basketball player talking about those times when the hoop looks as big as a hula hoop or, you know, a business leader running an amazing sort of brainstorming sessions where ideas are bouncing off the wall and it's all really working. Um, those are that sense of control. And finally, the technical term is flow is autotelic, which is a big fancy word for saying it's an end in itself, which basically means flow is ecstatic. It's joyous. It's wonderful. It's a great experience. More formally, it's the most addictive experience on earth. We will pref- we prefer flow to pretty much any other experience. And it's built into how we define happiness and enjoyment and engagement um, in, a, in a really sort of deep way. So those six characteristics, if they show up, you're in flow. Now, there's a spectrum. Flow's not one thing. It's a spectrum of experience. It's like an emotion, right? Anger. You're a little irked. You're homicidally mm-hmm. murderous. Still anger. There's micro flow. That's when those six characteristics show up, but they're dialed down to like one or two. So this is you go to work and you sit down to write an email to your colleague. And it's going to be a quick email. You want to over and done in two minutes and you get sucked into what you're doing. The ideas are flying and you look up an hour later and you're like, where the hell did the hour go? You've written an essay and maybe bodily self-consciousness didn't totally fade away. Bodily awareness sure did. And you pop back in your head and you're like, oh, wow, I got to go to the bathroom. That happens to all of us all the time, right? That's a common experience um, at work. On the other end of the spectrum, macro flow. That's when these characteristics show up and they're turned up to 11. Macro flow is uh, often mistakenly described, has been described as a spiritual experience. In fact, for the first 50 years into flow research, we thought macro flow experiences were spiritual experiences, meaning they were only showed up in religious communities and spiritual communities. And it was only in the 50s, psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow was doing this giant study on success. And he was looking, what do all these successful, super successful people have in common? Oh, they all found a way to drop into flow and use flow to improve performance. But everybody in this crazy study he was writing was atheist. So for the first time, people went, oh, wow, it's not a mystical experience. It's not just spiritual. Everybody can have this experience, what's going on. And that was sort of when it moved out of sort of spiritual studies in a sense and into kind of cognitive psychology. Um, And so that's how we define flow. Of course, I work on the neurobiology of flow. So when we define flow, we look at a whole bunch of different markers in the brain, body. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very different definition of flow. Yeah, you actually say that the secret to high performance to flow lies not in our personality, but in our biology. I think that's what you were alluding to right now, correct? Well, I have said, and this is not my idea, Yeah. Um, but peak performance is nothing more or less than just getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. William James, sort of godfather of psychology, uh, said it a hundred years ago. He said the best thing in any education is to make your nervous system your ally and not your enemy. Nervous system meaning your brain, right? And your and your nervous system. It's the same idea. And truthfully, without getting too complicated here, when you talk about that biology, right? Let's just talk about cognitive peak performance. Let's leave aside physical sport and dance, those sorts of things for a second. Um, just talk about cognitive peak performance. When you peel back the biology, 
knowledge, you actually find there are four categories of things going on under the heading peak performance. There's a category of skills that we call motivation. You mentioned motivation earlier, and it's a catch-all term. It means intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation, grit, and goal setting all gets tucked under this heading. There's a similar heading, uh, similar set of skills under the heading of learning, another set of skills under the head of, heading of creativity, and finally flow. And the way I like to kind of think about it is in any situation, motivation gets you into the game. Learning allows you to continue to play, to get better at playing. Creativity is how you steer. And the work I do is really focused on people going after high, hard, challenging goals that are in the future, not quite sure how I get there. Creativity is how you get there. It's how you steer and flow, which is the last category, which is optimal performance. It's how you amplify and turbo boost all these other categories as well. So that's sort of how it all slots together. And that's when we talk about peak performance and the biology of peak performance, where peak performance is just getting our biology to work for us. What biology? Well, specifically biology underneath motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. That's really what we're talking about with cognitive peak performance. I love that. And Stephen, what if you're not feeling too well? What if you have some kind of physical ailment or you're just tired? You know, you didn't get enough rest. Um, you're not, you, you didn't eat right for whatever reason. Um, can that impact your ability to access flow? Uh, yes. And so it's where I wish it was just flow. It was just flow. We probably could navigate from that. Um, we have in, in the science of peak performance, what I, I call them the positive psychology basics, really positive psychology has spent the past 30 years, just, they, they wanted to know, they were asking a related, not a peak performance question, but just a related question. Like what are the preconditions that lead to happiness and well-being? It turns out these same preconditions are necessary for peak performance. Um, and there's about there's six of them. And you mentioned a couple of them, which is why I had the, there's, first of all, there's sleep. And the research is really clear. You need seven to eight hours of sleep a night yeah. to perform at your best, right? Yeah. The research yeah. is really clear on nutrition and hydration. Now, there is there one diet that works for all of us? Not at all. That much is very, very clear. It's very, diet is very individual. Um, there seem to be guidelines sort of on, on eating, but it's very individual on a certain level. Hydration, drink plenty of right drink a ton more water than you're normally drinking that's sort of the quick answer but there's other weird stuff for example um social support which you hear a lot about in wellness or i've been working on peak performance aging and in with with aging uh your social network is really important but it actually is really important at a foundational peak performance level for sort of reasons that you alluded to so your point was if you haven't eaten well and you're tired you don't have a lot of energy right you don't have much get up and go so every moment, anytime you're facing a issue, right, could be a, a threat, could be a problem, could be a right, or could be a challenge, could be an opportunity. And you got to make it, you got to decide. And this is every moment of our lives, basically. When your brain wants to decide, you know, threat or opportunity, one of the things it says is, do you have a robust social network? Do you got friends? Do you have posse? Do you have family? Do people love you? Because if they love you, if you've got people, if you're going to fall down, if you fail, you've got people who will pick you up, you can take bigger chances. If you have people to help you, you can take bigger chances, right? So your social network, and so this is why, you know, for peak performance and just for health and well-being, you need to maintain robust social ties. Now, I'm an extreme introvert. I don't love people. 
I don't need to maintain <laughs> that many social ties, right? You don't yeah. need that many, but you need you need to manicure those relationships. You have to sort of touch people you love. And in my case, I'm you know an animal fanatic. I have lots of dogs. Dogs count as well, right? But you have to do this on a daily basis because you're sort of manicuring your nervous system and your energy levels. And so those are things on the physical side. And there's you. On the peak performance side, on the peak performance basics, the positive psychology basics, simple version is to perform at your best, you got to be calm, right? You can't be filled with anxiety. And uh, this is a big problem in the modern world, right? For all of us, uh, especially today, especially these days. And so there's three great tools for anxiety, a daily gratitude practice, a daily mindfulness practice of some, some kind of meditation practice or regular exercise. And I like I always tell people, if you're a little stressed, if you're normal, do one a day. If you're super stressed, um, do three a day because you have to, the more fear or norepinephrine, which is basically the brain's version of adrenaline, flow, simple version flows a high energy state, right? So it's got to sort of the body. And can you fake it? Can you get into flow one day when you're didn't sleep enough or didn't eat enough. Yeah, you usually can. You usually can sort of fake it for a day. Where it really starts to bite you in the butt is two or three or four days. And very quickly, those sort of conditions lead towards burnout, which is another huge problem, you know, in today's world for so many people. So, you know, when we would do a lot of work with, you know, at the Flores Collective with super burned out executives and, you know, these are the first things we 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 fix with that. Um, what about those those anomalies, like people who come from impoverished backgrounds who manage to make it big in life? You know, I I can't think of anybody now, but you know, perhaps an athlete from well, yeah, some so, village in some part of the world. You know, they manage to overcome odds, uh, the odds stacked up against them. Um, are th- are those exceptions or? Like what, what is it that's making it work for them? There are no, to the best of my knowledge, I've not met an exception. I have spent, so at the center of my career, you asked about journalism, how does this all thread together? I started out studying action and adventure sport athletes. I was a skier. I was a skateboarder and a snowboarder. Now this is early 1990s. These are not normal mainstream activities. They're still subculture, ostracized subcultures more than anything else. Um, they let me in because I was a punk rocker. I had a big mohawk and they would, they would hang out with me, but like, they wouldn't even like most of these guys and women wouldn't like even deal with most normal journalists, very closed communities. But if you were inside the nineties is often talked about as the era of impossible where like more impossible feats got done than ever before in action sports, so surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding. I wrote a bunch of books about this um, and what actually happened. And what really caught my attention, this is actually where the puzzle started for me. It wasn't just that, oh my God, these people are doing things that have never been done before and were not supposed to ever be being done. So all the folks I knew came from shitty childhoods. They like broken homes and really bad upbringings. They had little money. They didn't have any education. There was a like Mike Tyson of- is one example. Now, so, I know that I- this is that's regular sports, but I was talking about like guys like Danny Way in skateboarding or okay. Shane McConkie in skiing, um, the people who sort of redefine what's possible with sports, all the athletes in the 90s, 
it was sort of a punk rock subculture. Glenn Plake, Sean Palmer, Tony Hawk, all the all the skate guys um, and women too. Uh, my point being, lots of drug use, lots of drinking, lots of risk taking. Nobody has money. Nobody's got education, and everybody's had bad childhoods. And normally, you put these things together, people die younger. They go to jail. But what I thought I was looking at was this anomaly. Like these people were reinventing what was possible for our species, despite coming from these horrific backgrounds. And I wanted to know what the hell's going on. I also wanted to ask that question outside of action sports. So I took it into business and science and technology. And it doesn't matter whenever you see the impossible become possible. This could be a sci-fi idea from the 20th century that became a science fact technology in the 21st century, the birth of bionics or artificial intelligence or private space travel, all these things. I try as a reporter for 30 years, I was like, tried to put myself like when the world's first bionic eye got turned on, I was in the room. When the world's first private spaceship took off, I was at the launch. All these things. I want to know how did it happen? Why did it happen? And invariably, the less the story is the same. Like the, you meet these people who have done extraordinary things, but they all, every last one of them, started out ordinary. They really started out very much like you and me. And a lot of them came from crazy, difficult, challenging circumstances. In fact, I will say. Is a general and peak performance for a bunch of things that have to do with grit. People from disadvantaged circumstances. You know who has the worst time with peak performance? People who had great time in high school, who had all their needs met and had a great yes. time in high school. Though, and even a, and a phenomenal time in college, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Peak performance. The prom queen. People like that, yeah. Very difficult for those yeah. those people because there's certain. It actually turns out like getting your ass kicked as a child very beneficial for big performance in the long run. And, yes, um, it's 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 really true. And so there's a lot of weird advantages in what we would call disadvantage. And I always tell people I make people run an exercise. Um, I always point out that like. Life is funny and that our biggest tragedies always function like teleportation chambers. And what I mean by that is I would say the shortest distance between two points is actually teleportation, right? And the funny thing is we go through these horrific experiences, but usually we come out the other side, this like version of ourselves we wanted to be. We were somebody else. We wanted to be something different. This horrible thing happened to us and we, yeah, we went through it and it sucked. But on the other side, we're who we wanted to be. And I always think it's sort of like when I look at my life, I'm like, you know, sort of felt like the fastest way to get there. So I always like to like, you know, all those tragedies, their tragedies are right. They're painful. They're awful. And they happen to all of us. We've all got our shit. But the good news is they're also teleportation chambers. And the research backs this up, right? Most people don't go through trauma and have PTSD. Most of us go through trauma and we have post-traumatic growth. This is what Hemingway meant when he said the world breaks everyone and afterwards many are stronger at the broken places. That's Mm -hmm. how it's designed to work. That's how we're designed to work, um, which is kind of great. Yeah. Is that why you say it's important to lean into life's challenges and get comfortable with being uncomfortable? Um, I mean, Stephen, most people would they naturally prefer to take the easier route. I mean, they don't want, they don't want those difficult and painful experiences. So how do we overcome our natural 
that natural instinct? How do we overcome that resistance so that we can constantly stretch ourselves and accomplish those impossible feats that you talk about? Let me tell you how I do this. I have a philosophy, which is I'm not in control of my day. I work for the boss. Who's the boss? The boss is the version of me that has my long-term best interests at heart. My, the boss, I'm not me, me and I'm, I'm like everybody else in the moment. I want pleasure. I don't want pain. I would, I'm a homeostatic organism, so I don't want to exert much energy. Like all right. those things are very true. So the first thing I do is, you know, I, I, you know, I go into the day knowing, uh, I make a, a list of my goal. I have a clear goal list that turns out to be a flow trip. If you want more flow in your life, clear goals help you get there. But I also start my day. I, the day before the day, day ends today, I'll make a list of what I'm going to do tomorrow. That's my clear goal list. It's my goal list, everything I need to accomplish for the day. I work for the boss. The boss is the version of me that made that list. I don't have, once it goes on a list and once I say I'm going to do it, once I commit to something, I've given my word. I don't ever break my word, especially to myself. So if it goes on a list, it's a goal, it's a commitment, and I will die before I will go through tomorrow without chopping it off because I work for the boss. That's just, it's not, I take choice off the table. It's like going to the grocery store and not buying the foods that are bad for you. So they're not in the refrigerator. I do the same thing with sort of each day. And I find that is very useful, but I will also say bigger picture in the art of impossible, as you know, if you're interested in more, you're asking motivation questions. Motivation always, there's an order to the process. When we teach motivation and train motivation, we want to start with extrinsic motivation. A lot of research says that if you, you don't need a lot of money, you don't have to earn a lot of money, but you have to be able to sort of, can't be food insecure. You can't be shelter insecure. If you don't know where your next meal is coming from or how you're going to pay your rent, that creates so much fear. It basically blocks everything else. So what we tell people is if that's where you are, solve that challenge first, solve the economic challenge. And what the research shows, and this is really cool, is you don't really need to make a lot of money to be able to access peak performance. It's You literally like have to be able to pay your bills with a little leftover fun. Then that's yeah, and then it unlocks for you. And then you have intrinsic motivation to draw upon. And we have lots of different internal motivators. Intrinsic motivation um, are things like curiosity and passion, spite. Is it like bulletin board material? Athletes talk about, you know, he said this about me, and they call that bulletin board material. The spite is a motivator. Turns out there are five big motivators, the biggest levers we have at our disposal. And they're designed to come online in a specific order. Each one builds off the last. So there's curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And I always explain it this way. Curiosity is sort of like it gets you into the game again. Passion is just the intersection of multiple curiosities. Only one curiosity is a good motivator, right? And, um, and by the way, let's demystify motivation. Motivation, we talk about it as energy for action and a lot of stuff. but really. It's mostly about focus, right? Like focus is the biggest draw on our energy. It takes the most attention. It takes most of our energy just to pay attention to the thing we have to do. What's the big deal about curiosity? Focus for free. 
You don't have to do all that work to pay attention to what you're interested in. It happens automatically. Passion, the intersection of multiple curiosities, right? I told you I'm interested in flow, in writing great books, and animals. So when I wrote Small Furry, which is a book that, you know, I guess it was great because it was nominated for a Pulitzer, so it did well, whatever. Um, But it was about, you know, animals and peak performance. Like, I was right in that sweet spot. It was, I was totally passionate about it. And passion is the next level up. Then there's purpose. Once this organism, an individual, any of us have purpose, what do you want next? You want autonomy. You want the freedom to pursue your purpose. Leave me alone. I, I want to do this. This is what I'm here for. And then once you, once you have the freedom to do, pursue your purpose, you want mastery. You want the skills to be great at your purpose, to pursue it really, really well. So you want those five motivators. That's where you go next. And you want to cultivate them in order. So if people are listening to this and they're like, well, I don't know how to fucking do that, Stephen. Passionrecipe.com. If you don't want to read The Art of Impossible, you can go to www.passionrecipe.com. I lay out how all these motivators work and give you a practice that anybody can use. So that's a gift for everybody if you want it. Um, Once you have these intrinsic motivators, we've all heard about goal setting. That's what comes next. The Humans need three tiers of goals to perform at their best. We need mission level goals, sort of what I talked about earlier. Like I want to write great books, right? Then we need high heart goals. These are all the steps that get us to our mission level goals. So I want to write a book on peak performance. I want to write a book on animals. I want to write a book on food. I, that sort. Of, I want to get a degree in journalism. I want to have a blog or write. All those are the high heart goals. And then you want clear goals, your daily action plans that lead to your higher goals, that lead to your mission goals. When all of this stuff is pointed in the exact same direction, you get tremendous push, tremendous amounts of focus for free, tremendous amount of energy for free. You don't have to do the hard work. The whole point of peak performance, I always say, is the reason you want to go in order is you just get farther, faster, with a lot less fuss. That's the whole big deal about peak performance is we're all designed to perform at our best. Most people don't get there because they think it's hard. It's yeah. actually easier to do it this way. Like it's, it works better. You're working with your biology. You're designed by evolution to work this way. And if you do it, that's why, you know, and at the Flow Research Collective, you know, we train tens of thousands of people in 130 different countries. So we have great data sets on not just what works, but for enormously diverse populations. And the good news is all this stuff works across the boards because we're at the level of neurobiology. The level of psychology, you still have cultural differences, individual differences. At the neurobiology level, it's mechanistic. It's the same in all of us. Um, in fact, a lot of the stuff that we work with, it's the same in most mammals, right? We can mm-hmm. teach dogs how to like talk. horses. Horses and dogs can get into dogs. flow. Um, mm-hmm. All the social mammals get into flow. There's an open debate. Used to be the line was ferrets, believe it or not. They did this big study where they trade humans and ferrets and dogs to run on treadmills. And they measured certain what? neurochemicals in the brain okay. to, that show up in flow. I'm trying to and picture that. <laughs> Uh, it, it, they did it at the University of Arizona where they do a lot of really interesting work with like ferrets and prairie dogs. Um, okay. They've also used AIs to decode prairie dog language at the University of North, it's Northern Arizona. They do a lot of really cool stuff there. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, but they figured out the, the line was supposed to be ferrets because ferrets can't supposedly produce anandamide, but that's super geeky and you don't care. <laughs> so I was, 
All right. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us, um, yeah. Stephen, because these are, you know, these are really ambiguous terms and having a framework like that really does help. Everything you just talked about is in your book, right? The, the Art of Impossible. Is that right? It is. Uh, except for some of the dog stuff, which is either, oh, some of the dog stuff. Yeah. yeah, the dog stuff is either in Last Tango in Cyberspace or a Small Furry Prayer. But other than that, yeah, it's, <laughs> okay. it's the Art of Impossible. Okay, so very quickly, let's just switch gears and talk a little bit about the uh, the new, your new book, The Devil's Dictionary, um, which has been referred to as an action packed techno thriller. So I'm, I I want to know what inspired you to create the protagonist, Lion Zorn, interesting name, and his special empathy tracking abilities. So, Lion, yeah, that slightly longer. I'll try to give, it, give you a quick answer here, but... Um, yes. So Lion is an empathy tracker. It's a new version of human, like the, the a new species, basically, um, which sounds a lot fancier than it is. It's very, we live in a weird time where there's like one hominid species on the planet, but historically there were lots of different versions of us. And yeah, they didn't survive, right? Yeah. Right. Historically, and it's really, it's actually pretty easy to fracture a species. So I just said, hey, we've, we know about empaths. We talk about empaths. Like I've got friends mm-hmm. who are empaths. I work in animal rescue yeah. and I meet really empathic. So I just said, okay, we're going to, we're going to take that and roll it farther. And there's a new version where they have wildly expanded senses of empathy. And they, this is a character who feels empathy for all humans, of course, but he also feels empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems. And his empathy isn't just individual, it's also cultural. And if you have a, a empathy for cultures, you can sort of see how cultures steer and collide and blend and lean to the future. And he's got a job in this world 20 years hence. Today, we talk about cool hunters, people who go out and spot trends before they happen, right? And get yes. employed by advertising mm-hmm. agencies. He's doing the same thing 20 years from now. He's using his M tracking skills, which are super fancy, basically as a cool hunter for tomorrow. So that's where sort of the plot starts. But you ask where it came from. The books, the book, all of my uh, sci-fi books uh, are about a world where the big environmental challenges that we currently face, species die off, planet, uh, climate change, have been solved. It's not a utopia by any stretch of the imagination. But the question I was asking is, in my belief and in the, in the peak performance work, if you can't imagine a future, you can't create a future. Like step one, right? And all the near-term future sci-fi I was reading about environmental stuff was all apocalyptic. And I was like, okay, but I would like to solve climate change and species die off. So let's, what does that world look like? And what kind of change has to occur in this world for these problems to be solved? And one of the things that I thought had to happen, and we can talk about why, is that I thought the world needed this same kind of wildly expanded empathy that my protagonist has, what I call empathy for all, empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems. There's a bunch of neurobiological reasons why this is important um, that have to do with how we see and perceive and care about the natural world. But what was interesting is you asked where it came from. In flow, one of the things that naturally happens is empathy expands and nature relatedness. And nature relatedness is basically empathy for the natural world, plants, animals, and ecosystems. This happens automatically. A lot of different altered states of consciousness can do it. We see it, some of the psychedelics can produce this. We see it when certain meditation practices is very common in flow. And 
uh, environmental activism is directly related to nature relatedness. So when nature relatedness is empathy for all goes up, people start caring about the environment a lot more. So I was seeing this in the flow work that we do. And I started saying, okay, if we're really going to solve our environmental challenges, we need this at, you know, at a much more widespread. So that was sort of idea. That was how one thing led to another. You asked where it came from. And that's sort of, it grew out of the work. I've worked on environmental issues for 30 years. So it yes. grew out of a deep passion for environmental stuff and the relationship it has to like what we know about peak performance. In a sense, it's funny, certain things that are hot button topics, psychological safety, diversity, environmental activism are baked in to peak human performance baked into flow. In a sense, you could say when humans are performing at their very best, psychological safety is guaranteed. So is diversity. You need diversity of ideas and Mm -hmm. diversity of cooperation to perform at our best across the boards. And um, it's all of us. It's not just like a human species first thing. It's plants, animals, and ecosystems. These things are sort of baked in and built in to humans perform at their very best. Um, so I just sort of took what I was seeing in the peak performance world and expanded it out to the rest of the world. So in your experience, this uh, sense of empathy for everything that lives, it can be cultivated. Can it help overwrite, you know, our selfish impulses that are actually causing the damage that we, yeah, I mean, that so we it's, see it's in the environment? Impact. Because that is, um, that is a, the problem with a capitalist society. A lot of the corporations don't really care about <laughs> care about these uh, uh, the environment and animal rights. You are not wrong, though. I will say, this year I started to notice, and a bunch of colleagues of mine started to notice that triple bottom companies for twenty years have been triple bottom line goals were bullshit. Nobody was doing much about it. This year started to notice that big corporations and small corporations were getting very real. And I was, I just, I didn't know I was looking. Harvard Business Review did a really big article on it um, where this is the year that companies started to get very real about things like ecosystem services and understanding, oh shit, we benefit from clean air and clean water and healthy forests. And like, and so yes, you're right, but I'm maybe it's starting to shift. We have something called our sphere of caring psychologists call it our what do you care about right so actually let me back up one step the brain every millisecond faces this huge information processing challenge there's 11 million bits of information that flow in through our senses every second and way more comes from our brain internally but this is just what our senses can gather in a second That's like 660 million bits of information a minute that we have to process. And so what the brain always has to do is like tease apart what can we pay attention to, what can we pay attention, just to put it in context, 140, 126 bits. So you can pay attention to 126 bits at any one second and your brain gathers 11 million bits a second. So almost everything that's happening gets thrown out. So what do you hold on to? Well, you hold on to stuff that scares you and you hold on to stuff that's aligned with your goals. And how does like, and and how does it find that stuff? One of the triggers is your sphere of caring. Your sphere of caring is 
those people, things that you care about yourself, you usually care about your friends, your family, maybe you care about people in your city or your tribe, or your country or your religion or your whatever, but you have a sphere of caring. How does it widen out? Empathy. Empathy is the lever that widens our sphere of caring. So if you only care about your family and your friends, your brain says, well, I'm only giving you information about your family and friends because all this other stuff is unimportant, right? Yes. If empathy extends out and you feel for all people, then you're going to get information about all people. If you feel for plants, animals, and ecosystems, suddenly you're going to get, start getting information about plants, animals, and ecosystems. When psychologists talk about our environmental problems, they say, look, big problem is that most of us literally don't see or perceive. We don't get the information. Literally, it's locked out of consciousness because of this process about the like very world that we're trying to protect, trying to save. Mm -hmm. That's you know one of the issues. So empathy is sort of the magic bullet here. And it turns out empathy is really trainable. Um, in love and kindness meditation, Tibetan love and kindness meditation, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, is one is fantastic, right? All Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin has done extensive research. So is one of my mentors, Dr. Andrew Newberg. But like the research on, on and we know we have, we have deep understandings. Like empathy is something that takes place mostly in the temporal parallel junction of part of your brain that's right here. Like we know what it looks like. We know where it comes from. We know how to get more of it. And we know here's a cool thing: like implicit bias, right? Uh, which has been in the news sort of a lot lately. Love and kindness meditation actually will get under implicit bias. So like it literally, you can like use it to not only expand empathy, but like get past your sort of like reactive tendencies, right? The brain does uh, us, them separations automatically yes. all day yeah. long. And right? we're seeing that a lot. I mean, especially in the United States. Well, it's, it's not even, so people get, have this wrong in that they, they, they talk about this implicit racism and things like that. That's not how the brain actually works. What the brain yeah. wants to do is it wants to know at every second, is this thing in front of me like me or not like me? If it's like me, maybe I should become friends with it or maybe better, I can mate with it. If it's not like me, oh shit, maybe I need to run away from it, right? So the fundamental question, every time the brain encounters anything that moves, meaning anything that's alive, it goes like me or not like me, like me, not like me. How, what is like me is our sphere of caring, how wide empathy is. I'll tell you something really cool. Um, obviously, after the events of George Floyd here in the States, yes. social justice is a big issue for police at the Flow Research Collective because mm -hmm. uh, Flow naturally expands empathy. Suddenly we started training a bunch of different law enforcement agencies all over America who wanted less reactive cops who could make better decisions and have more empathy. And Flow, because you can train up Flow and you get these other qualities automatically, it does that work. Uh, it does that work. So, it, and it, because it's kind of difficult to get cops to do love and kindness meditation, right? But you can get them to do flow peak performance training because that totally makes sense. And the byproduct is empathy and less, you know, wider, less us, them, more, you know, more us, less them, basically. Um, so there is, uh, there, I know all these things, uh, which is not to say there aren't like frightening, difficult things going on in the world. Of course there are, mm -hmm. um, yes. but there's also really interesting solutions that are, start, that are starting to arise too that are worth pointing at. Wow. So flow can benefit us both on a personal level on, and on a global level, on a collective level. 
Yeah, I always said that the reason I started the Flow Research Collective was um, I thought if we were going to solve the challenges ahead of us. It's not just, I mean, I, Peter Diamandis and myself talked about, you know, the technology that we have at our disposal mm-hmm. now and how it allows us to tackle these grand global challenges like never before poverty and energy scarcity and water shortage and things like that. But I, for us, like it wasn't, Technically, utopianism says, hey, we got the technology, it's just going to happen automatically. Both of us were like, whoa, 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 that's not how it seems to work here. Like, this is, we can get the technology, but it's going to require maybe the largest cooperative effort in history to get this done. Like, we want to solve climate change. That's the entire world cooperating like that before. And, I, and I've really made this point. Um, I'm convinced, at least, it's not just us cooperating, it's us performing at our absolute best. That means in flow cooperating, right? Group flow, which is the team performing at the very best, the shared collective version of flow. That's what's really required to solve these kinds of problems. And it's a great thing that empathy and collaboration skills and these things come baked in because we're going to need them to solve these challenges. Yes. Wow. Uh, Stephen, you're doing some incredible work. We really need more people like you on the planet. I mean, we really do. Um, I mean, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Honestly, we I'd, I'd, I'd like to talk some more, but I think we better end the conversation here. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your vast knowledge with us during this, uh, during our time together. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's fun hanging out. So for anyone who is interested in, uh, in uh, learning more about Stephen and reading his books, The Art of Impossible and The Devil's Dictionary, you can find them in all major bookstores and on Stephen's website, stephencutler.com. Uh, the information will be in the description box. All right, Stephen, you have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.